The bankless state in the nations are brought to you by Wiron. Wiron is DeFi's first self-building community-run project, which I just get really, really excited about. Wiron is a system that seeks out yield in DeFi, and it does that in a number of different ways. Well, a very aggressive way is with the vaults, where you can deposit your preferred asset of choice, and different DeFi experts will come in and generate a strategy for what to do with your deposited token, right? And so it'll go find ways to get yield in that deposited token in DeFi. For those who want to just earn yield on their stable coins, the earn system is for you, where you can deposit your preferred stable coin and Wiron will go and figure out which money market on DeFi and DeFi is producing the best interest rate, whether it's DYDX, it's Compound or Aave. It, it looks around DeFi to see where the yield is coming from and it directs stable coins automatically so you don't have to. Check them out at yearn.finance to get started and also check out the stats page to see what other people are doing as well. We're also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is your cool new DeFi account, your DeFi savings account, your DeFi checking account. Except the cool thing about the Monolith DeFi account is that it gets software updates, right? You actually get to increase the usefulness of this over time. So here are some of the features. Monolith is a smart contract wallet with a lot of the features that you would expect if you've come to know DeFi and what it is. You can you can add money to it. You can put that money to work uh, in Compound and, and accessing yield. Uh, but you can and you can also swap through Uniswap. What was cool with Monolith is that they will send you a very sexy Monolith Visa card that connects to your smart monolith smart contract wallet on Ethereum. So it's a really awesome tool to live a bankless life with a, a, a savings account that gets software updates. So this is, this is something that you're never gonna find out in the real world, but you can still do real world things with you know real money in, like buy your groceries. So that's just fantastic. Coming soon to monolith, actually already here to monolith, is now you can buy die and get it sent to your wallet directly, right? So it's also being an on-ramp. So you don't have to go through your centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini or wherever. You can just go straight from your bank account right into your Monolith checking account smart contract wallet. So check them out at monolith.xyz. Welcome to episode 18 of State of the Nation. We're super excited to have you with us live today. If you're watching on YouTube, we've got a special guest, Tim Bako. Of course, it's myself, Ryan Sean Adams, and David Hoffman who are hosting the State of the Nation today. So if you're new to State of the Nation, what we do is talk about what's happening, particularly in the previous week, topics that are relevant related to some of the big picture stuff we talk about in the podcast, we talk about the newsletter, and then drop some insights and action items. And today is going to be absolutely no different. We're going to be talking about a few things today, the first of which is EIP-1559. If that, if that like phrase doesn't make any sense to you, this is really Ether's perpetual scarcity engine, super important to the economics and future of Ethereum. We're going to dive into that, particularly where is it? We've got Tim Baker, who's going to tell us a little bit about the development and progress of that. We're also going to be talking about the things that are driving the market right now, particularly six. Uh, and David has that in mind. Um, before we get to the, the question I always ask David, a couple things coming up in the bankless community. So David, Vitalik is coming on next week, right? We're, we're, or we're actually doing a recording with him this week, mm -hmm. and that episode will be released next week. What are we going to talk 
to Vitalik about? Yeah, th and this has a lot to do with what the state of the nation is this week. Uh, the, the Ethereum 2.0, as it has been, is around the corner. <laughs> but uh, this one seems to, this time- <laughs> For real feels, this time? <laughs> for real this time. This time it feels okay. different, right? Uh, and especially with the very large amount of new entrants into the DeFi world, I think, it, and it's really been like two or three years since the conversation of why ETH2 has really been you know, mainstream. Like really the last time, the last time we were, uh, the community was really talking about why proof of stake you know why sharding like why why do we why did we choose these things I, th I think it's a time to revisit those choices re revisit those design choices and so we're bringing Vitalik onto the bankless pod to rehash some of the age-old conversations as to why proof of stake is important you know why are we doing sharding instead of something else so this is gonna be a great episode yeah, that's going to be awesome. Vitalik is, I, I personally listen to every single interview or thing that Vitalik put, puts out. So uh, th this will be fantastic. We also have a token report that is dropping this week. We only do one of these per quarter. Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking at some of the graphs from last <laughs> quarter and the growth in DeFi was like, absolutely insane i feel like that's downplaying it it's just yeah. mind-boggling so we're coming out with that q3 on looks Thursday. different than previous q's let's say oh that. my god <laughs> q3 eats all the other q's for for <laughs> breakfast man it is just a killer quarter for DeFi, and you'll see that in the numbers that lucas is putting together so catch that on the bankless newsletter if you're not signed up there's a link in the show notes to that uh, David, we're also doing a, a new roll-up round mm -hmm. uh, later mm -hmm. this week on the YouTube channel. Another reason to subscribe. What's the roll-up round, David? Yeah, so we, we were trying to figure out where do we fit news and current events th that happen on a weekly basis in the Bankless program, right? And so we're creating a new show called Roll-Ups Round. Uh, this show is going to be very short and succinct, so 30 minutes, call that short. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the light of things that, that move quickly and go fast, roll-ups. So we're calling it roll-up round. And this is where we go through some of the same questions every single week, such as what's in the news? Ryan, what's on your mind? Uh, what are you looking forward to? Uh, and so it's kind of a way to keep in touch and, and really a nice in a nicely packaged roll-up, which is why we call it the roll-up round. This will be very well packaged. So yeah. this this is one of those episodes. It's not like the podcast where like podcasts could go 90 minutes and you're like, what? David and Ryan are still talking. <laughs> but like roll up rounds, they're going to be, we promise, 30 minute range. 30 minutes. And it'll be like like a 30 minute bite sized content for, mm -hmm. for you to get the, the latest information. Lastly, David, tomorrow, I'm super excited about mm -hmm. this. It's the Invest Ethereum conference. Yeah. And you're actually going to be speaking in that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's like one day left, right? One day so left, only right. one day mm -hmm. left to grab tickets. So, one so left, only right. one mm -hmm. day left to grab tickets. So what should folks do? Yeah, there is a code in the show notes uh, called it, Bankless. That's what it is. And there's also a link in the show notes where you can use that code to get $25 off of your ticket. It's uh, And what I'm going to be talking about is Ether, the triple point asset, right? And so you guys all know this thesis, but it's been over a year since I've really given it as a talk. Uh, and that was to the uh, an Ethereum native event, right? Uh, run, thrown by, by consensus. Uh, this is Coindesk. So this is different. Different audience uh, like wants to tune into something tight you know, not so like utopic that the Ethereum community is used to giving. So uh, I'm excited to, to give this thesis out to a, a different audience. Yeah. And I'm also excited that Coindesk is throwing an Ethereum event. Mm -hmm. It feels like the, the first of its kind. And I bet as this is successful, there will be many more. All right, David, let's get to our first order of business. I'm going to ask you the question I always do. What is the state of the nation this week? 
The state of the nation is anticipating. We are anticipating. Okay. And this has, uh, and like all state of the nations, this has many different uh, meanings and, and uh, places where it's relevant. Uh, one thing we are anticipating is EIP 1559. That is the main subject of today's state of the nation. Another thing that we're anticipating is the rollout of Ethereum 2.0 as the testnet continues to, to chug along. Uh, but in addition to what's going on in Ethereum, there's also the elections in front of us, right? There's also fears of covid what's going to happen is there a is there a third wave or is just the second wave kind of like hanging on too long is the vaccination real there's a lot of things that the, the world seems to be anticipating another one is is how many more public companies are going to put bitcoin on the balance sheet uh, a lot of things anticipated around that so as a nation we are anticipating do you think, David, this skews like more nervous anticipation or like more optimistic anticipation? Yeah, I mean, I am a permable, so take that into account. So I'm on the optimistic anticipation side of things, but there are plenty of reasons to hedge that optimism. Um, so we will get into those in the second half of the show. Very cool. All right. Well, let's get into our first order of business. And uh, to do that, I want to introduce you to Tim Bako. He is a product manager, uh, manager on the Consensus Protocol team, specifically focusing on their mainnet Bezu client. Uh, Tim, if you're there, we, you know, welcome to the nation. It is fantastic to have you, sir. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Welcome, Tim. Hey, Tim. I love that background, dude. That is just killer. <laughs> Thanks. Nicely done. All right. You know what? Um, we want to talk to you about EIP 1559. And, you know, first, let me say we have really appreciated. And when I say we, I'm, I'm talking like myself, of course, and, and David, I think I speak for him, but also the entire Bankless Nation, very supportive of EIP 1559 and specifically the work you're doing to kind of herd the cats on that initiative and to sort of uh, manage the project and also to communicate updates to the community. I feel like if anybody wants an EIP 1559 uh, update, what's the latest, you are a fantastic source for that on Twitter and other places. So first of all, thank you very much. Like, like seriously, thank you very much. We really appreciate the work you're doing. That's great to hear. And uh, yeah, there should be another update uh, out later this week. So uh, I'll be sharing that as, Fantastic. as I get it done. More updates are better, my friend. All right. So uh, as we get in, I, you know, um, we're, of course, people on the Bankless journey are very familiar with EIP 1559. We've written articles about it. We talk about it um, often, all of the time. But uh, maybe for folks that aren't as familiar with it, Tim, could you give like your word in your words, just a quick explanation of what EIP 1559 is? Sure. Um, it can be hard to explain very quickly because it touches a lot of the parts uh, in Ethereum. Uh, but one way I, I think about it personally is it changes our fee market to trade off uh, volatility in fees for volatility in block size. So right now, all of the Ethereum blocks are, you know, they have a max size and they're, they're mostly full. So they're, they're mostly always the same size. And we, we get a lot of variance in fees because uh, the way we decide which transactions to include is through a first price auction. Um, and that leads to a lot of inefficiencies. So people basically overpaying because they, they have to pay, you know, the highest possible price to get in the block. So what 1559 does is it proposes to instead we'll stretch our blocks to twice their current size, but only keep them half full on average. And the way you keep them half full on average is you set a minimum fee 
for a transaction to be included in that block. And if there's more transactions that want to be included, you raise that fee. If there's less, you lower it. So you kind of smoothen out the volatility of transaction fees. Um, but in, I guess, uh, in response to that, you get blocks which might vary in size more than they do today. Um, and another part of 1559 that's, that's noteworthy is that in order to security set that minimum fee, um, you want a way for which miners are agnostic to it. So because otherwise they would choose for that fee to be as high as possible all of the time. Um, so what we do in that case is we, we burn the fee. So the minimum fee needs to be included in a block. That part of the transaction fee gets burnt. Um, and that leads to 1559 having this nice property of when more and more people want to use Ethereum, there's more demand for block space. The fee that gets burned goes up uh, for each transaction. And burnt means no one gets it. It's just gone yes. completely yeah. from circulation. Exactly. So Tim, when uh, Eric Connor first introduced this EIP, he presented it as a way to make transactions on Ethereum easier, right? We can kind of obfuscate yeah. gas because of the EIP. Uh, and that was kind of like, it seemed to be the main incentive towards getting it included into Ethereum. It's just going to be a, a quality of life update for transactors yeah. and wallets, right? And that's also fantastic. That's something that we absolutely need. Uh, but then then people like me and Ryan figured out that this is actually a, a, a different mechanism in addition to that, that burns Ether, right? And you know, yeah. me and Ryan are always kind of totally focused on Ether, the asset and the way that it relates to Ethereum. And so this changing of Ether monetary system uh, was a big deal for us. And so we started kind of branding it as like uh, what, what Ryan called as Ether's scarcity engine, right, on Ethereum, which is totally separate from the usability uh, feature of EIP-1559. And what you just explained is that EIP-1559 uh, changes uh, fee uh, volatility for block size volatility. So everyone yeah. is kind of seeing something different in EIP-1559. How do you yeah. kind of co co coalesce all of these different things into one definition? And if, if there was a, a simple or easy way to explain what is the goal of EIP-1559, have you thought about that? Yeah, I, I think about it a lot. And I think that's like the best and worst thing about 1559. So the fact that it's, you know, multifaceted uh, means a lot of people support it. So obviously kind of the Ether investor community, as you said, are, are kind of excited about the fact that it, it burns Ether. Uh, the UX motivation, I think are, are, are really good as well, because it goes from Ethereum being a network that's always full that you have to wait to use to a network where like next block inclusion is the default rather than, than the exception. Uh, and that has a ton of, of nice UX properties, both for transactions on chain being included uh, quicker, obviously, but also for layer two solutions that need to post commitments and whatnot on chain, uh, it makes their operation much smoother. So it is like this, this pretty big UX improvement. Um, I work on a client team, so I tend to take a very client-centric approach, and this is where the sort of blocks, block size volatility bit is very relevant uh, to us. Um, and like you mentioned, the, the economic parts are, are also interesting. And, and it's, it's very hard to concisely describe 1559. I think you kind of have to, to go with your audience and, and you know start with that the angle they're most familiar with, and, and, and slowly you kind of build up the rest. Um, but like I said, I guess this is what gives it a lot of the support in the community, so that's good. It's also what makes it very hard to analyze and to reason about, uh, which which is a which is worse, you know, because it's it, you're optimizing for two to three things at the same time rather than one, um, so it can it can make it sometimes harder to to just communicate exactly. Oh, we're doing this for this reason, and this thing will be better.
Yeah, and, and I think that offers a pretty good rationale for like, you know, why EIP-1559, even though it does seem to have completely unanimous community support, seems to be getting out the door relatively so slow. And, you know, mainly it's because it's such a uh, comprehensive change to the core, the core way of a blockchain function. So it's a big deal in of itself, but it also it impacts so many different groups of people in specific different ways. So we need to have each individual stakeholder and how they are impacted differently accounted for in this change. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, and I think, yeah, it is at least as... As I'm aware, probably the largest change we've done on ETH1 through like a single mm -hmm. EAP. Um, and, and as we're working through this change, we're trying, you know, we're talking with a lot of stakeholders. Last week, uh, we put out a report uh, that uh, a couple of folks from the catheters and myself worked on uh, where we interviewed 25 projects. We're still looking to talk to more of them to basically get all their concerns about the EAP and try to understand stuff like, you know, how should we support legacy transactions? How much time do they need, you know? Uh, to, to implement EAP support, uh, what do they need from us to do that as smoothly as possible and whatnot. Um, and, you know, we've already started doing things based on that report. So we had conversations before about whether we should just convert legacy transactions to 1559 transactions and keep them both kind of forever um, and still burn the base fee on, on legacy transactions. And it seems like that's an approach that'll work for, for basically all projects. Uh, so it was great to be able to confirm that. Um, just last week, we had the implementers call where we were discussing more at the client level, how do we deal with sorting the transactions uh, as, as we propagate them over the network, uh, because now this base fee component is, is something new that we're introducing. So we just need to make sure that, you know, everything from like the clients, to the smart contracts, to the UIs for those smart contracts um, kind of can work with 1559 um, and are, are aware of... Uh, of, of, of the fact that it's happening and, and what it implies for them. You know, David earlier mentioned that there was uh, some unanimous, uh, there was unanimous support in the community. And I, I certainly see that from the, uh, the investor community. But if you kind of broaden it out, one, one of the interesting things, you brought up the, the report, Tim, that, um, that you guys put out with the cat herder and that interview, I think there was questions to like 25 different projects. Some of which were on-chain applications, wallets, exchanges, miners, a uh, no investors, but I, I, I guess the assumption is investors are like full steam ahead, guys. Um, <laughs> but but and anyway, there's no technical change. Sorry, yeah. The other thing too is the report was focused on like changes projects needs to do. You know, I investors, see. you'll buy or sell ether, but you don't need to you know do much more than that. Exactly. Okay. So, um, but but I I guess one takeaway was that. Um, EIP 1559 does not have completely unanimous uh, support across all stakeholder groups. At least that was sort of one takeaway I read from the article. For, for, for the detractors or, or people who are, I guess, a little more bearish on 1559, why? So I guess there's two, there's two groups uh, of people that were, that were against. The first, miners were strongly against. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we talked to... Uh, eight or nine of them and all of them minus one were against and the one that was not against was neutral. So, you know, I, I don't think there was positive thing. Uh, th there's a couple of reasons there. I think the first, the first being obvious is the part of the transaction fee that's burnt directly goes, um, you know, away from their income. So uh, there were risks that if, you know, uh, a large part of transaction fees are burnt, then smaller miners become less profitable. Uh, it leads to more centralization of mining. Um, 
So I think that was one big category of risk. There's also some some concerns about potential attacks on the mining sides uh, and, and miners saying that, uh, uh, yeah, there would be better ways to do collusion under 1559, although that hasn't been proven uh, in any like extensive uh, description that I'm aware of. Um, and, and finally, a lot of miners were supportive of it, but would like to see it just like on E2.0, uh, so, so kind of farther, farther out. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one big group. Uh, I think there's, it's a whole kind of can of worms, you know, how miners should be considered in the ecosystem and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, I, I have opinions on that, but I think, you know, it's the community's job to, to decide if and how they want to, to, you know, take that into account. Um, there was another, I guess, category of people who were, who were opposed, who are not necessarily miners, um, who I think that the two biggest pushbacks that they had on the EAP were uh, that it was this very complex uh, change that doesn't have like a formal specification highlighting, you know, this is all the impacts that it's going to have. And these are all kind of the second order impacts that this will have. Um, and, and, and that makes it harder to refute the EAP because you can't just point to, you know, this statement and say, actually, this is wrong because we don't have this kind of exhaust, exhaustive description. There's some work that's being done on it. Uh, so uh, Tim Roughgarden, who's like a leading uh, game theory and computer science professor, is, is working on an analysis comparing 1559 to our current fee market. So that should help inform a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of, I guess, intuition behind it. And Vitalik just put out some slides yesterday or today, I believe, uh, giving, giving some more of that. But I think there's not like a there is a technical specification, but we don't have a clear economic specification. And that's something that uh, some people would like to see before they feel confident, you know, moving all of Ethereum to this new system. Um, and I think that was really kind of the biggest objective. There were a lot of smaller objections, but I think if I had to put like a meta one, it's just the fact that there's not this solid economic spec in a way that people can point to and, and then argue. Um, yeah. I guess on the first, just with with the miners, um, you know, serious question, Tim. Do you think it's important for us to listen to to um, hear what miners say? Like, if if you ask any anybody, right, yep. who's making money on something, yep. hey, we're going to make a proposal. Let's say the the U.S. healthcare system. We're going to make a proposal that cuts revenue to the U.S. healthcare system, yep. right? Like, they're going to oppose that, right? Na yep. Like naturally. Yeah. Um, but 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 it still might be better for the system as a whole to, yeah. you know, increase efficiency in the United States healthcare system yeah. or implement some some other mechanism, right? But like it's obviously politically they're going to oppose it. But I guess uh, my question is why should the opinion of miners actually matter for something like EIP fifteen five nine? So I think you know at the very least we need miners to run the chain, uh, you know, and and so if they are so opposed to it that, uh, you know, they will not upgrade, uh, then that'll become a contentious upgrade. And, and I personally would like to avoid that. It'll be much harder to get it through. Um, I think, you know, and it's worth asking miners if there's changes that they would like to see, obviously, aside from like not burning the base fee at all or stuff like that, that, that would make it easier. Um, I haven't heard back like any kind of, you know, proper proposals or, or specific things that, that they'd like to see changed. Um, and it's also worth noting, like, 
I guess we don't have good data on how much of the fee will actually be burned. Because when we say 1559 burn fees, it burns the base fee, but there's two parameters in the fee under 1559. There's a base fee and a minor tip. Um, and we need to have this minor tip because otherwise miners can just mine empty blocks, right? They won't have any incentive to hold the states, to run transactions and whatnot. So in theory, like the minor tip just has to be, just has to make it slightly profitable for miners to hold the state and to execute transactions and 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 there'll be some minor incentivized to do it. Um, in practice though, I think with DeFi, you'll probably see a lot of transactions with a fairly high tip because the opportunity cost of not being in the next block is so high that you know it's worth way overpaying on your tip too. So that's still part of the revenue that the miners will get. And if you look at fees on chain historically, basically aside from like ICOs and DeFi, um, Fees were always very, very small relative to the block reward. Uh, so I, I don't have the latest numbers, but like for a very long time in Ethereum history, fees were like 95% of the total miner income. And uh, sorry, fees were 5% and the block reward was 95%. Uh, whereas now recently we've, we've switched where oftentimes the fees are bigger than the block reward. Um, and so miners will still be getting part of that increase because a lot of that increase is driven by people who absolutely need to be in the next block. Um, and, and the question is how much. So if people, I guess, like who understand this data or have, you know, good hypotheses about how it would evolve, uh, could kind of communicate that and share that. I think it's one thing that could help with miners if we were able to say, hey, we suspect, you know, I don't know between X and Y percent of your income will probably disappear due to the base fee, but between Y and Z of the fees will probably still, will probably still go to the miners because of, uh, you know, these on-chain transactions. I think that would maybe help just like have a better conversations with them. Um, but yeah, I guess at the end of the day, we do need miners to mine the chain. Um, and if they're extremely opposed to it and no other miner will step up to mine in their place, uh, it'll just make the upgrade much more complicated than it has to be. I got it. And miners certainly have been doing fairly well these days with transaction fees. They have been, um, it's not an exaggeration to say, raking in the revenue from Ethereum yeah. in unexpected ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, I, I take your point, although I will say hopefully game theoretically, as long as there is any revenue to be made from Ethereum, some miner is going to step up. Heck, David and I will start running uh, GPUs in our office if, uh, if the other miners do not want to do that. Um, but, but let's address the second, um, I guess, uh, objection pool that, that you mentioned. And that's the, the folks saying that, hey, EIP-1559 is, is too complex. Yep. We need more modeling. We need to understand everything it's going to touch. I've heard a counter objection to that, to, that, that just says, hey, basically guys, you can model all you want, but it's kind of like, like COVID and coronavirus, right? Like you don't actually know what's going to happen until it's out there doing something. And then it turns out all of your models are going to be wrong anyway. So there comes a point in time where you just have to say, Hey, like we, we've done the best that we can and we just have to test it in the real world. Um, so, uh, you, you mentioned Vitalik slides and I'm going to pull those up here, but, but maybe you can kind of weigh, weigh in on that, uh, that counterpoint to just say like, Hey, you, the only re the way we're going to actually test this thing is in the real world. So we may yeah. as well get started in the real world. Yeah, and to be clear, those are not mutually exclusive. Right now we're doing both in parallel. So as we're waiting for this economic model, we're taking the spec as is, and we already have a 1559 
uh, testnet running between uh, us, Nethermind, and and uh, the Vulcanized team who's building on Geth. Um, so we've we've been using that as a way to just a like debug the spec, make sure that you know we can actually implement this and different clients can agree on it. B, find you know bottlenecks from an engineering side. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, how do we actually deal with legacy transactions? What's the best way to do that? Um, so we're able to do that work and and you know build up gradually more complex test nets that give us real world data, uh, which even at some point we can have you know bug bounties on and whatnot. Um, and in parallel, we can do this simulation and R and D work to try and lay out kind of the 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 more formal analysis of 1559. Uh, so on on that side, I mentioned earlier, Tim Roughgarden is is doing like a, a proper economic review, but uh, Barnabé, uh, who's a researcher at the EF, has been doing kind of an in between approach where he's running a lot of simulations in in Python notebooks about different types of agents using 1559, what what the equilibriums would converge to and whatnot. Um, so I think for a uh, a change like this, you basically want to have all of that data. We probably won't know exactly what happens to it until it goes on mainnet, but hopefully we can reduce most of the, the biggest risks. Um, and, and a lot of people talk about you know, having 1559 on Ethereum 2.0 as well. And I think this is also a chance we have to you know, try 1559 out on Ethereum 1 make sure that like it works uh, but then if there's other you know secondary benefits we want from it we can then have those on e2 and we'll have at least had a first run of it uh on, on our current chain tim i'm just skimming these slides yeah. from vitalik and you know yeah. hey vitalik's a pretty smart guy right um and yeah. these slides actually look simple enough that uh that i could probably understand them it yeah. was there anything new that uh he he put together in these slides or is it just sort of a, a summary and a restatement and a simplification of I think, yeah I, it definitely is like a summary and a restatement okay. uh and and the first couple slides you came over give you know some of the economic intuition around like why we want that um and yeah i i i, I find those slides are, are, are pretty good yeah to send to somebody who like you know is Pretty familiar with Ethereum, obviously, uh, but maybe not so familiar with 1559 at a high level. This is probably a good uh, a good intro. Very good. We will include those in the show notes then. Yeah. So Tim, we've been dancing around a number of different uh, subjects, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of it has to do with modeling. Uh, is that yeah. where we are currently with EIP 1559, or what are like the next steps that we need to overcome to get this thing yeah. closer to getting shipped? Yeah, so uh, I actually I have a checklist uh, that I've I've shared publicly. It's called Mainnet Readiness Checklist. Uh, that lists basically all the things we probably need to do uh, to get fifteen fifty nine live. I can share it in the Zoom chat here. I don't know if you'll be able to uh, then share it on on, on your screen. Um, but this gives like a good idea of like what we'd like to see before EIP fifteen fifty nine moves through kind of business as usual on the core dev side, um, and you know, to skim over it quickly, obviously we need every single client to implement it. Right now, the three teams that are working on it are us with BaseU, uh, the Nethermind team, and then the Get client is being worked on by Vulcanize. Um, so this is fine for now. Eventually, Open Ethereum and TurboGet will need to implement it, but they don't need to implement every single version of the spec, right? They can just wait till the three of us come up with something final and implement that. So that's fine. Um, in terms of just like the client work, uh, you can see here we've already solved a couple issues in the past few weeks. Um, there's a few more things we need to figure out. Uh, 
the biggest one is kind of outside of the scope of 1559, but is uh, the denial of service risk uh, on Ethereum mainnet. Uh, so this gets pretty technical pretty quick, but there's ways uh, that you can exploit how some opcodes on Ethereum are priced in terms of gas relative to the time it takes for them to run on a computer. And so if you just call the opcodes that are kind of underpriced relative to their execution times a bunch of times, you can, you can slow the network down potentially. Um, and uh, 1559, because we have blocks that are that can go twice as big as our current blocks, any attack like that would be twice as worse uh, on, mm. on mainnet. And that, when we brought the EIP up on the core devs call twice, this is really the number one main objections. And the way it's being fixed is not directly in the heat. So mm. uh, GET has been working on snapshot sync, which is a similar approach to what TurboGET is doing. And on BaseU, we also have uh, an approach like that which allows you to store the state in a way that's more efficient to query and that deals with a lot of these attacks. Um, and in parallel to that, uh, there's another EIP called 2929 that raises the gas costs of some of these uh, opcodes that are uh, underpriced relative to their computation. So we definitely need to see those changes go live on mainnet before 1559 is deployed. I don't think it slows us down uh, because you know 1559 is not in the next upgrade that's scheduled already. It'll probably be in the one after that. Um, and I think those things will be deployed by then. But this is really, I would say, at the client level, the number one risk. Like, if we don't fix those things, we just can't safely deploy 1559, um, no matter how well it works on test nets. And this is kind of the hard part, because a lot of these problems that we see with, like, potential attacks on mainnet are a function of how big mainnet is relative to the test nets. So we can't really, you know, try this out on a test net and then see. Um, I mean, you know, there's there's ways we can model that again and whatnot, but we'll really get the real test what's inside the mainnet. Aside from that, you know, there's a bunch of small issues we need to fix in the spec. This is the work we're doing kind of day in, day out. Uh, again, in the first section, you, you kind of saw that, but just, um, you know, how do we how do we transition from the current types of transactions to the new ones? Uh, how do we, you know, uh, deal with other EAPs that, that want to add more transaction types like EIP 2718? Um, all of the, you know, just simple UX, like in MetaMask, when you replace your transaction by fees, because we're changing the way the fees work on 1559, how do you do that in a way that doesn't create other attack vectors? And so this is really like what kind of the client implementers are working on, and it will be probably over the next quarter. Um, and honestly, I think that's kind of the bulk of it. Obviously, we need to do a bunch of testing. We need to do documentation. We need to change some JSON RPC formats to, to return data. but the bulk of the work is really about how do we make mainnet stable enough to handle 1559 and how do we resolve just all of these kind of small issues with the spec um and hopefully you know once we get the results of the economic analysis that's been done maybe we'll tweak some parameters in 1559 but we won't need to rework everything we've done it'll really be you know changing some small things and, and reworking that but the the bulk of the of the work will have been implemented okay so uh, the, is, but the next hard fork is Berlin, which I believe is slated yeah. February-ish, I think early 2021. Yeah, I would say, yeah, Q4, Q1. Q4, I, Q1, okay. And there's not an exact date, but yeah, around that time. Uh, so I think if everything went well, we could get 1559 in the one after. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no date yet, but I think historically, you know, I, I wanted months, to get it in before DEF CON, yeah. but then they moved DEF CON back three months, so you know. We'll see if, if that's possible. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, that six to nine months range is, is possible. Um, yeah, it, it, 
it's just hard to, to predict those things. Uh, you know, it, it assumes burden goes well, right. uh, that there's not, you know, major attack on the network or whatever. And there or, are dependencies, you know. right? Like things need to get included in Berlin first in order to make the EIP-1559 yeah, exactly. fit. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. And, yeah. and I think you just mentioned on it, but if you could expand on it as, uh, as well. Uh, so this work gets recycled and implemented directly into Ethereum 2.0. Yeah, if, if if with EIP one five five nine, or is there additional new work as so, well? So for sure, there will be some new work to be done. I'm not mm -hmm. super. I'm familiar with E two at kind of a design level, but not at the you know implementation level. So mm -hmm. this is going to be kind of hand wavy. Um, but fine. you know, if you have the assumption that like an ETH one, the first shard on ETH two is like an ETH one shard. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if we get fifteen fifty nine done before that, uh, which which I, I, I strongly believe we will. Um, you'll have 1559 moving over from ETH1 to ETH2. Okay. How the transaction fees get kind of paid to validators and whatnot once you start having transactions on ETH2, I'm not super familiar with, but I think there is, you know, strong consensus within ETH2, or at least everyone I've talked to on ETH2, that they want a 1559 kind of flavored ETH2 where a part of the transaction fee gets burnt, you can query uh, what's the minimum fee for a certain block and whatnot. Um, but for sure, there'll need to be some changes just because we go from a proof of work to a proof of work stake system. Um, yeah, but I don't think there's any desire to not have 1559 in E2. And at the same time, once we transition over, if there are things with the actual 1559 mechanisms we want to improve or change, we should be able to do those changes at the same time. Well, so how does so, Tim, it work I think with Ethereum 2.0 right off the bat? So... It, it, you, you said like when the Ethereum one chain gets rolled into the Ethereum chain, well, there's uh, the yeah. phase zero and theoretically the phase yeah. one uh, that come before phase 1.5. So I don't think there'd be any impact on E2 for 1559 until then. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's, yeah. uh, the, so there's no, the, the base fee mechanism that isn't built into phase zero at all. No, okay. not in the staking. No, because it's based on sending and receiving transactions mm -hmm. and, and you don't really have that. Well, you, you don't have uh, like arbitrary transactions during phase zero. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so Tim, as somebody who's um, in the Ethereum community, but not attending all of the governance and, and all of the technical calls, just kind of keeping aware of it, right? Um, you know, it feels like we've heard about EIP 1559 for a long time. Yeah. And the perception has been, um, oh, like it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, but no one can actually tell us like when or an yeah. action plan. And it's felt like as somebody observing this process that, um, you know, ETH1 development can get bogged down in stuff like, um, you know, should we, should, should, should we do ProgPal, right? And yeah. like the community screaming, no, like let's yeah. do EIP 1559. Everybody wants this thing. Where is it yeah. guys? And I, I will say like, you are doing yeoman's work to like put together an actual implementation plan and a checklist. Yeah. And when I see this kind of thing, I have much more confidence that yeah. uh, like there's a team around this, it's going to get delivered. There's some organization. So yeah. all of that's fantastic. So like you're boosting my confidence. And I think probably the bankless community's collective confidence that this thing will get delivered. But I want to ask you because you are in the trenches, yeah. um, what's your confidence level that we are actually going to get EIP 1559 in ETH1? Because I have to yeah. tell you, some people are still like, yeah, okay, Ryan, but like, it'll never come. <laughs> I think uh, what I see as the biggest risk still is the denial of service risk. Like just if we can't make ETH1 safe enough 
to deploy it. Uh, you know, everything may, may work on the test nets and, and, but it's just like not safe to, to move it to mainnet. Uh, so that's where I see the biggest blocker. I don't think in terms of implementing 1559, there's any kind of major outstanding issues. There's a ton of like minor issues, right? Like don't get me wrong, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, but like I, We've, our team has been working on it since roughly March or April. Um, and it kind of took us, you know, a couple months to get up to speed on it. And then, you know, slowly building momentum over the summer. Um, I think at this point, like it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's the EAP itself seems pretty well scoped. I, my biggest concern on it was how we handled legacy transactions. Um, and I think our, the solution we've come up with that is, is pretty good. Uh, and nobody so far has, has, has said that it was, it was broken in any way. Um, so to me, it's really just, can we make the network safe enough uh, against uh, against potential denial of service attacks? And I think there I'm confident in the work that Get team is doing, that our team is doing, and, and TurboGet also has been doing really good, uh, been having really good progress recently. Um, it's hard to place the number, you know, on <laughs> how confident you are, uh, but I don't know, I'd say there's probably a 75 plus percent chance unless, and, and what would drop that number is if, if there was another potential large denial of service vector uh, that that came up on mainnet and and that for some reason more block space made worse, um, yeah. So I'm pretty confident in, in the teams working on the EAP itself, and and you know also pretty confident on the the state of like the core improvements of the networks. Uh, but when you multiply two probabilities that are less than one, they shrink pretty quick. Uh, yeah. Tim, that's very good. Th thank you for that. Tim, one question I've always had about EIP-1559 is the uh, theoretical max block size issue. So um, just as, as a recap, uh, with EIP-1559, it makes block sizes variable and, and tries yeah. and stabilizes transaction fees. And there are certain parameters for how large it allows yeah. the next block to be. And it goes, it, yeah. is there an actual absolute uh, uh, cap yes. on block size? And what is that cap? Yes, the, origi the original EAP was 3X and then we brought it on all core dev. And mm -hmm. I think it was the get team that says there's no way uh, that'll ever work. Why, so why, why won't the 3X size blocks work? Because just the, again, it was the denial of service risks mm -hmm. and just also the, you know, the, uh, periodic like having to process going from like you know processing x to 3x spike and whatnot in an mm -hmm. unpredictable way we a lot of things would have broken there so 2x i think is is 2x is where the spec is at right now mm -hmm. um so right now there's a maximal like the blocks will double uh so if we have you know 20 12.5 million gas right now the network it would you would have a max block of 25 million gas mm -hmm. um I think if that was the main issue, we could probably make it smaller. You know, like if if we if we had to have fifteen fifty nine with like one point five x, you know, instead mm -hmm. of two, I think I think we should probably do it. I'm again there. This is something I'd love to see somebody produce data on. My hunch is like at one point one x, it wouldn't be very helpful. Like the mechanism just like could not correct enough. Um, but like you know, at one point two five, is it good? At one point three, is it good? Like there, it gets very fuzzy for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think if we get, you know, the denial of service, uh, like the, the the snapshot sync live, we get turbo get up and running a bit more, um, and we reprice the opcodes, you know, 2x should be fine. Um, but we're definitely open to changing that if, you know, if this is the deciding factor of whether or not 59 makes it in. 
So this kind of seems to me a little bit like Ethereum's relationship with uncles, where over time, uh, client development and, and iteration and research means that our clients are more efficient. And as a result, the yeah. uncle rate goes down. And for those that aren't yeah. familiar, the uncle rate is like, how often do does Ethereum accidentally make a bad chain in like, a, yeah. it, like it accidentally forks a little bit, but then... And then we converge back onto the main chain. And we don't want uncles because yep. it's relatively inefficient. Uh, and over time, exactly. client development has been able to reduce the uncle rate, right? We've gotten more efficient yep. uh, at not producing uncles, which means we've gotten more efficient at pro uh, producing and, and propagating blocks. Is that yep. something that we could see with the variable block size? Could like design and research and, and improvements yes. increase the total that's block it. size? Yeah. And that's so uncle rate is not our bottleneck anymore our biggest bottleneck is state access. And the mm -hmm. way for that, Get has this great shot, uh, great post that explains snapshot. Uh, I'll, again, I'll send it to you and you can share it in your, your show notes. Uh, it's, it's fairly accessible. Even if you're not like a you know client developer, you can definitely read this and understand why. Uh, oh, for some reason it's not working now. I'll, I'll send it to you after. Um, but basically Ethereum data is stored in a tree. Right, uh, so you, the Ethereum state is like everybody's account and balances and all the smart contracts codes and their balances and whatnot. It's like a whole big, big tree. Um, and that means uh, every time it grows, you're kind of adding uh, leaves, we call them, to the bottom of that tree. Um, and there's a number, there's a max number of kind of rows, if you, or sorry, of columns in your tree. So like. There's, there's like a, we call it a root node and it has a mm -hmm. couple child. And at some point those childs have children and whatnot. And the number of like branches that you need to hop into to access an account makes state access in general slower on Ethereum. Um, because when there were, you know, zero accounts on Ethereum, like just the Genesis block, you basically can access every account from the root node. But then when you start having more and more data stored, the tree just goes like deeper. And that means every time you add data, uh, Every, every time sorry, you access data, you need to go all the way down. Um, and this is what causes some issues uh, with just performance on mainnet because our state is so big. There's so many accounts, so many contracts relative to any other network like uh, you know Ethereum Classic or, or our testnets that it just takes a lot of time to go down every time. And so right now what clients are working on is instead of storing it all in a tree, they just have like a flat list of everybody's accounts. So that means that you can just access it directly um, and that sounds simple, but the hard part is tracking all of the multiple changes that happen to accounts accounts on every block. Um, but once we have that, I think, again, we'll be in a spot like a lot of the performance work we did around block propagation to reduce uncle rate. We'll be in a spot where like state access has been made much more efficient and therefore we can do more changes on Ethereum. And account abstraction is another popular change that's been kind of held back for similar reasons, uh, just because it's not that the way we store data is inefficient, but it's just become inefficient given this the scale that we had. Right. And this is not a problem we had three years ago. Yeah, more, more money, more problems is, is how, it, how it goes. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. Okay, so, so there's some future iteration, future development of Ethereum that can even improve the efficiency of EIP-1559 so long as we, you know, tackle this, you know, is, is this what state bloat is? When people say state bloat, is that what yes. they're talking about? It's, it's exactly what they mean, that the tree has become too deep and it takes mm -hmm. too long every time we want to go to it. Yeah. Okay. So, so with successful uh, research and development and tackling this problem, it's possible that we could get up to those three, three X larger block sizes, or perhaps even bigger than that. So I would start with two X, you know, I would pitch right. it, but I think, 
you know, if if this stuff all works, I think we can very likely get to mm -hmm. 2x and uh, yeah, and then see from there once it's live on mainnet for a while, you know, are we comfortable pushing it more? What would be the benefits and whatnot? Cool. Awesome. That That is cool. I like things that get included in Ethereum that improve with other improvements as well. That seems to be the right way to go. Yeah, definitely. Tim, it has been such a pleasure to have you on. We've wanted to get you on in front of the Bankless Nation for some time because uh, honestly, we just wanted to, to figure out if EIP-1559 is, is really going to happen. And um, you've, given, you've given us, I think, some additional confidence that uh, maybe 75% confidence <laughs> or, or higher that it is indeed going to happen. So thank you once again for your work and for joining us on State of the Nation today. Thanks a lot for having me. It's our pleasure. All right, guys, we're going to get back and talk about in just a few minutes and talk about um, five things that are going, actually six things that are driving the crypto markets today. David and I have some insights to drop on that. But before we do, we want to get some of our to some of our fantastic sponsors that made this State of the Nation episode possible. Zapper is this new tool that I use to check out all of my assets in DeFi. As you guys have known, DeFi has absolutely exploded recently. And so managing your assets is getting harder and harder because there's so many different places and so many different assets that it could be. So I'm going to put my Ethereum address in here and Zapper is going to tell me where all of my assets are across Ethereum, right? So uh, here are all of the assets in this wallet. Uh, there's, there's a decent amount of them. Uh, and it's also going to tell me where I've deposited assets into various DeFi protocols, right? So there's some uh, yield farming going on. There's some liquidity pooling going on. We can also look more granularly at the specific protocols that it's involved with in this explore feature. So it's got some assets deposited into Uniswap. It's got some assets deposited into Balancer. And also with Zapper, you can just exchange straight from the Zapper interface, right? So this is just another layer on top of Uniswap or other exchanges on Ethereum that allow you to swap assets, right? So check them out at zapper.fi. It'll give you a nice clean portal to invest your assets in DeFi. And you can also connect multiple wallets if you use multiple wallets all at once, and it'll give you an aggregate of every single wallet that you own. Check them out at zapper.fi. Also, this is definitely not my wallet. Unstoppable Domains is helping the world become censorship resistant and permissionless. If you are looking for a censorship resistant website that no one can take down, go to unstoppabledomains.com and type in the domain that you think that you want. So I'm going to type in the domain that I think that I want, Trustless State, and it's going to tell me some of the options that I can get to get a permissionless domain, trustlessstate.crypto. And so what you can do with trustlessstate.crypto or whatever domain that you want is you can, you can purchase it and then it can be a URL that you direct people to that no nation state can take down. That's what Unstoppable Domains is all about. What's also really helpful with Unstoppable Domains is that wallets can integrate unstoppable domains so that the addresses that you send your crypto assets to can become human readable. And this doesn't work for just Ethereum. You also can do this for Bitcoin or Litecoin or any blockchain at all, where, where wallets can resolve to your human readable name. So you can tell Bitcoiners to send you Bitcoin to trustlessstate.crypto or yournamehere.eth. Check them out at unstoppabledomain.com. All right, guys, welcome back to State of the Nation. David, we've got to talk about some things that are driving. These are like drivers, maybe maybe um, somewhat macro themes that are driving particularly crypto prices right now. And I want to bring up this Market Monday uh, opening note 
that you put together on uh, just just yesterday. The bank and use that as a guide for talking about some of this stuff because I think it's super insightful. But you listed six different things that are driving crypto markets right now. Before we get into those, why is it important that like we understand um, crypto prices? Isn't it just like like a random walk through crypto, right? It's just whatever. It's all noise. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter in the short run. It's all going to work itself out in in the long run. Uh, why do we need to know about these these themes anyway? Yeah, and in the your reference to the the random walk is a good one. For those that don't know, the ran, the random walk is this kind of theorized model for how crypto prices move. And if you think of a, a really drunk individual who's like stumbling down the road, they they stumble <laughs> down the road, but they still follow the road, right? Like they go left yeah. and right across the road, but they still follow the road. Uh, and so understanding where this walk goes is really important because where it goes is relevant to our goals, relevant to our ethos, relevant to the bankless nation, right? And so understanding the things that are impacting the price of ether is something that impacts the bankless nation, right? Fundamentally, we all are here because of things that are valuable, assets that are valuable, right? And so as the value changes, it's important to integrate that into your understanding. All right. Well, let's talk about some of those things that we think are are affecting the random walk. And maybe it's not so random after all. And the first is this. This has been a a theme of 2020, right? You know, um, people in the crypto community have been talking about, um, you know, like the, the, the rampant inflation and money printing of the dollar ever since 2008. But like we are seeing it in overdrive in 2020. It's it's a part of our lives now. Like uh, bills are being voted on it. It's a it's a constant discussion. Are we going to get another airdrop check, at least in, in the US? Other governments are similar. Can we talk about this first one, which is the new COVID relief package? So for folks that have been uh, outside of, of US politics anyway, what is that and why is it important to the story here? Yeah, this is the second uh, COVID relief package with $1,200 in it for for all Americans. Uh, And this is something that a lot of um, people that if they were around now, they would have been Bitcoiners. But, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, were maybe they're gold bugs or libertarians, people like Ron Paul said something like this was coming like forever ago. We're like, and, and Ron Paul said like, you know, inflation is eating the middle class. And, you know, what that has now with COVID is now we need inflation in order to survive, right? And so they are pumping dollars into the world in order to sustain, uh, you know, the unemployment and the, you know, the, the lockdowns that we are able to have. So it's trying to balance out, uh, you know, making sure that people don't have to go out to go to work and so they can stay home and be safe away from COVID uh, and also uh, allow businesses to be uh, afloat. But then it's also doing this through inflation, right? Uh, more or less at the end of the day, the the, do- the value of the dollar is going to inflate when a bunch of dollars get injected into the world around us. Yeah. So the big question is uh, the, you know, the $1,200 check is, mm-hmm. is coming. It seems almost inevitable, but right. the big question is where are people going to put that $1,200? I had a, a friend of mine uh, who wasn't in crypto previous, but he got his $1,200 check mm-hmm. and he just went wild. Like he just like, okay, now's my chance. It's, it's mm-hmm. money. You know, it, this is evidence of the money printer. Maybe some of the crypto folks are right. And he just mm-hmm. started investing in Bitcoin and Ether. And of course I'm in this space. So that's the sort of thing like there's some selection bias here. That's the sort of thing I'm going to hear about. Um, however, if you look at you know how crypto prices sort of responded uh, post 
the first stimulus check. It's pretty, it's been pretty, uh, pretty insightful, pretty, pretty phenomenal. Uh, way above the S and P, at least for Ether and Bitcoin. Way above the price of gold. Of course, that could be other market cycles. So mm -hmm. you know, this, the trend there's line isn't here. long enough to. to mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some noise here, but I guess the question to ask yourself is like. What are you going to do with right. your $1,200 check mm -hmm. once it comes? If you have enough disposable income to meet your, your needs, are you going to put it in stocks? Mm -hmm. Are you going to put it in real estate? Are, like, what's the store value? Are you right. going to put it in crypto? Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, that's why I think we're seeing this graph respond in that way. And keeping on this graph, it, maybe it kind of doesn't fit in the narrative that gold is underperforming versus the S&P. But you can even pull apart some of the companies in the S&P, typically the tech stocks from the rest of the S&P. And the reason why we would want to separate the tech stocks is, A, they are absolutely dominating the S&P. And so they basically are the S&P. And the reason why tech stocks have done so well is they typically don't have any debt. They actually have the opposite. They have a lot of cash on hand. And what's really going on is companies that have liabilities aren't doing so hot and companies that have assets are doing hot. And so, you know, I bet you if we were to separate the S&P line into companies that don't have liabilities and companies that do, gold would be doing better than the companies that do have liabilities and worse than companies that don't have liabilities. It's all about having cash, all about staying solvent in this market. Yeah, tech companies too. I think everyone is seeing this this move to digital. I mean, like mm -hmm. I'm doing more and more on screens and less and less in the real world mm -hmm. as, a, as a result of COVID. And I think some of those practices are going to be sticky. So some of the telecommuting software we use, some of the remote software we use is going to continue in the future. Everything is becoming more digital, hence tech stocks. Um, interesting to observe, but it looks like the check is going to land. Mm -hmm. We're going to have money printer go burr. We're going to have some um, <laughs> helicopter money mm -hmm. dropped on us at some point soon. Um, also, the second just, thing you just mentioned- Just to add on a, a small little tidbit yeah. onto the end of that, because it's not something I, I knew at, at the time, but uh, China is also doing an airdrop in their central bank digital currency to their citizens. So this is not the only game being played. Not to be outdone, not to be outdone, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, China wants to print some money too. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, election uncertainty. So this is again, a little us centric, but mm -hmm. I think it has ramifications across the world. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sure a lot of folks know what's going on, but like, what's your, what's your hot take on that and how that, um, how that leads to market uncertainty? Yeah, there, there's two things here. First off, we don't know who's going to win the election. And so there's uncertainty around that. Right. Uh, and well, there's also uncertainty as to how one of these parties is posturing about how they are going to accept or not accept the election results. And the mere possibility of, of somebody not accepting the results of election is also very makes the market very uncertain. Right. Like that is a very uh, uncharted waters for the whole entire country. And so therefore, it's going to be uncharted waters for the market to learn how to deal with that, right? And in the backdrop of this, we just have civil unrest from the polarization between these two parties, which kind of just amplifies uncertainty, right? Like you take uncertainty and then you add civil unrest on top of it. You just get even worse uncertainty. On the flip side of things, however, both parties seem to be posturing and wanting to like get into the party that is giving out relief, right? Like both parties want to be known as the party that got checks into the hands of Americans, right? And, you know, the, the Democrats famously, the, the more pro-worker uh, 
uh, party uh, really just wants to give out more money than the, the Republicans. And But interesting, the Republicans aren't the no party. They aren't the no, we're not giving any money party. They are the party of we're just going to give a little bit less. Right. And so both parties are being the parties of relief. So kind of if you're if you believe the, the part number one, where as money gets injected, assets, especially crypto assets, go up, both parties seem to be posturing for we're going to print more money. Uh, so that's interesting. Yeah, it does seem like both parties have a modern monetary theory agenda. No matter who wins, that's going to be the long-term trend. But in the short run, we've got this election uncertainty that we're dealing with that could cause markets to, to dip. So if we're looking like short, medium term, right? You've got money printer go burr, which is maybe bro crypto, possibly. But then you have election uncertainty, which is like uncertainty everyone goes to things like dollars, cash, right? Yeah. In that case, cash mm -hmm. money, just want to make sure I have enough money to pay my rent and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about uh, a third thing you list, which is this BitMEX mm -hmm. uh, incident. We've talked about it with Jake, Jake right. on State of the Nation last week, but despite BitMEX uh, falling, mm -hmm. you know, one of the, the largest crypto derivative banks, Bitcoin bank primarily, Bitcoin is still alive. Right. It's like, you know, taking a hit, but it's doing okay. Yeah, so on the BitMEX news, the uh, uh, the BTC and the rest of crypto price just plummeted, right? Because that's bad. A lot of uh, a lot of volume and a lot of exchange activity happens on BitMEX. But I think over the long term, this is going to be extremely bullish because if we want more and more of the world's capital to have a reasonable chance of getting into crypto then we need to have legitimacy in this space, right? Like the, 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 legitimacy, the legitimacy of the cryptocurrency industry is much better to have an asset to have than BitMEX the exchange. And so I'm totally a fan of, of you know, you know throwing, throwing BitMEX overboard in, in for favor of more legitimacy. And what's also interesting is that the market, you know, it, it, cra it didn't crash, it dipped at the news of BitMEX, but then it just resurged and rebounded even harder, right? And so in in bull markets, you know, we shed bad news and in good, with good news, uh, we, we moon, right? And so that's kind of what I see happening. I like that you use that word legitimacy because obviously the government's way to get legitimacy in the market and trust in the market is through regulation, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I do think trust in our institutions in general is at all time lows, but the CFTC solution for that is basically, hey, we need to regulate, we need to be watchdogs in the mm -hmm. industry. Um, but legitimacy is a neutral word and so is trust. The other way we can gain that trust in the um, derivatives market is actually through transparent DeFi, mm -hmm. right? So if you're using a uh, transparent smart contract driven derivatives platform, maybe something more along the lines of DYDX or even in the future synthetics, mm -hmm. uh, everything's on chain, everything mm -hmm. is auditable. You don't have to trust Arthur Hayes yeah. with your funds, <laughs> right? That like that's uh, another level mm -hmm. of legitimacy, I yeah, think. And I point. do think all of this is uh, bullish for for DeFi. So does Robert Leshner. Hold on to your butts, he says. Hold on to your butts. <laughs> well, I, th well, I, think, your I butts, think that's a, a, a Bart Simpson uh, quote, actually. I'm not sure if that oh, was there you go. or not. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm -hmm. All right. So the fourth thing is public companies loving Bitcoin. Right. Super interesting. So, but somebody asked me on Twitter, um, you know, is this bullish for Ethereum? So I, uh, or Ether, I guess mm -hmm. there's maybe two, two questions there. So tell us about 
public companies loving Bitcoin. And um, it seems obviously bullish for, for Bitcoin. Is mm -hmm. it also bullish for Ether? Yeah, sure. So this is the second public company to add Bitcoin to its balance sheets in the very short time frame, like maybe six weeks, right? And the first one was MicroStrategy, which, you know, at the end of the day, MicroStrategy is really just this one guy who seems a little bit impulsive and seemed to just market buy a bunch of Bitcoin and put it on his company's balance sheet. <laughs> the second is Square, led by Jack Dorsey, who is, you, could call, you might even call him a Bitcoin maximalist, definitely pro-Bitcoin, doesn't believe in other tokens doesn't necessarily believe in ethereum uh, and so we have two companies that with bitcoin on the balance sheet and this is a big signal to other companies that the bitcoin scarcity game is being played right like you guys i hope you guys all read the article that we put out on, on bankless called bitcoin scarcity game it talks about how like the uh, uh, choice to not buy bitcoin is a choice Right. And so, you know, if companies aren't thinking about putting back Bitcoin on their balance sheet, they're going to lose out to companies that are thinking about it. Right. So very fundamental to the value value proposition of Bitcoin. And we see this uh, scarcity game playing out on larger and larger scales. Like first off, it is played off by individuals who, you know, spin up their CPU on their laptop to mine Bitcoin in 2009, 2010. And they and then they, you know, mine it more because they want more Bitcoins. Right. And then, it, you know, it starts to people start to buy it. And then, you know, companies start to build around it and then it just scales and scales and scales up and now we're at the point of public companies is public companies turn to play uh the music the game of musical chairs with bitcoin right and that's what that's what i see currently being played and that's just tailwinds for the narrative of bitcoin is this bullish for ether and ethereum you know i see a lot of bitcoiners tease me saying like you know nowhere did michael sayer of michael strategy or jack dorsey put ether on their balance sheets and so like, no, this is super bearish for Ether. Like they don't even understand what Ether is. Uh, but I would remind them that every time that Bitcoin moves upwards, Ether tends to move upwards even more, right? Just because of the nature of the market caps. Like Bitcoin is, I don't know what the market cap of Bitcoin is, like 300 billion right now versus Ether's like 40 billion. Uh, if Bitcoin doubles, Ether's historically more than doubles, right? And so it's it tends to be a leveraged play along Bitcoin. So, you know, Bitcoin success is Ethereum success. Because, you know, if, if people see put Bitcoin on their balance sheets, they're also going to think like, OK, what else can we put on our balance sheets, especially after it, it moons? Right. They're going to ride that train. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I do think probably 80 percent, maybe more of the people who are into the space, myself included, probably you included, like we learned about digital scarcity through Bitcoin and Bitcoin scarcity game like that was the gateway. Uh, for for me anyway to Ethereum and through to DeFi and to open finance in general. So it um, you know Bitcoin is ten years old. Ethereum is five years old. I think Bitcoin will uh, continue to be the gateway to other interesting crypto projects like like Ethereum. So probably good for both. I agree. Um, all right, this thing is unsettling, David. Um, Bitcoin and ETH have this correlation with the S and P five hundred that it can't seem to it, like it can't seem to shake mm -hmm. right so i guess this is part of the first theme that we were talking about where money printer goes burr and then stock prices go up right, right. as long as people are like they they do an initial flight to safety so mm -hmm. they'll go to us dollars for a bit and then they're like okay the world's not collapsing and the fed will continue to print money so they don't want their money in dollars they want their money in store value assets like stocks um but uh, and, and crypto, but 
Ether and Bitcoin have both exhibited this strong correlation with the S&P. It almost feels like we're playing in crypto with a leveraged stock game, like an leveraged S&P game. What's your take on that? Yeah, this is like I I said this in the article. This is my least favorite thing about crypto at this present moment. Like I signed up for the uncorrelated (laughs) industry, right? I signed up for a nation that doesn't exist in the real world. Like, but all of a sudden, like we're correlated to the S&P stock market, right? Which, which, you know, means that we are therefore correlated to a COVID third wave, right? We are correlated to another round of shutdowns. We are, you know, correlated to civil unrest, right? We are correlated to anything bad that happens in the world is going to happen also to crypto. And this has been more or less been true since, you know, uh, the early March dump, uh, Black Tuesday or whatever. Uh, so it, we've been correlated uh, for a while. And I, I, I think part of, you know, why there's so many different market factors right now is kind of creating that, um, you know, we're not correlated to the S&P. We're all just kind of correlated to the same level of general uncertainty, right? And so we're also kind of all correlated to the money printer, which is also a good thing, right? Because if like a third wave happens, you know, all the bad stuff in, in the world happens, well, then they're just going to turn on the money printer and that's going to be bullish for Ether and Bitcoin again, right? And so it, I don't like it because I don't like being correlated to legacy. I do like it, though, because then we have upside exposure to the money printer. And like, what is a better value proposition than being able to have upside exposure to something that prints money? It does seem like it's an artifact of time horizon, too, right? We are in this like you know, nine to 12 month, maybe 18 month theme where we're correlated temporarily to the S&P, but like fundamentals suggest that that should not remain so in the future, right? So if you, if you analyze, uh, analyze why buy crypto, why buy Ether, why buy Bitcoin, um, you buy those assets for different reasons than you buy stock, right? So I do expect that like, that's just the kind of the, 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 medium term, short to medium term cycle that we're in, but I don't think it'll remain so. Um, you know, if, if, if we're right about digital nations and if we're right about crypto as an asset class, uh, things should not stay correlated for the long run. But let's get to the fifth thing, and this could be a catalyst for that breaking of correlation, David, and that's ETH 2.0. So um, is it actually gonna ship this time? Because I heard <laughs> ETH 2 is never gonna ship. <laughs> Dude, the, the funniest thing about the last bull market that we all went through is like it was the over the tone of the bull market was like, yeah, this bull market is going to lead right into Ethereum 2.0 and we're all going to be staking. Yeah. And 2017, by 2017, the way, right? 2017, like the, not this bull market <laughs> the last time. And that seems to be kind of the narrative that's playing out right now in, in this uh, appreciation cycle. Uh, however, it seems to be a lot closer. I don't know. Maybe that's what I said last time, but I, I'm, I do think that it is indeed right around the corner. And like you said, this is exactly the catalyst we would need to break that that correlation, right? And also, first and foremost, it is possible to be upwardly correlated with something. And so while we are correlated, we are still correlated in an up and to the right trajectory. And I think that's what's going on with crypto. And I think things like Ethereum 2.0, where a lot of the value pillars of Ether, one which we just talked about with Timbieco, with EIP-1559, but then also with staking, uh, actually gets priced into Ether, right? And I, I said in this article, I actually don't think that the fact that you can stake Ether 
uh, and receive rewards is going to be a great catalyst for Ether price appreciation because I think the people that are going to stake Ether are going to be the people that don't really trade or sell Ether that much, have had Ether for a long time, and also are not participating in DeFi. And so I really think the Ether that's going to become staking first is going to be dormant Ether. Like this is, we're, we're talking about like Vitalik's e Ether or uh, the EF's Ether. Ether that has been slated for proof of stake since like 2015 about, when it was how, created. How about your Ether? You I'll, I'll get there eventually, right? But, but, but not not necessarily off the bat. You I am not to going to be the first through down. the door. No, sir. <laughs> somebody else. E I will be following somebody else through the door first. Yes. You don't want to lose your ETH on something like that. Um, mm -hmm. All right. So if somebody were to ask me in 2017, when is ETH2 coming? I probably would have said something like 2019. Mm -hmm. And that would have been totally faith-based. Mm -hmm. would have been like, like based on my feeling, mm -hmm. like we didn't have test nets or I didn't see a project plan, that sort of thing. I feel like uh, we as a community have gotten a little smarter. Mm -hmm. um, but even if you asked me late 2019, when ETH2 would happen, I probably would have said late summer. 2020. Mm -hmm. yep. And now here we are, we're past summer 2020. Mm -hmm. And now what are we saying, David? We're saying like, Q, it looks like it'll Q4 or Q1. Mostly right, Q4, Q4 though. Q4, Q1. All right. So, so if you're, if you're saying Q4, mm -hmm. um, why are you right this time? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what Danny think, Ryan like, said. <laughs> okay. So I'm blaming, I'm blaming on it Danny does, Ryan if we're wrong. It does feel like we've got test nets, mm -hmm. we've got implementation plans, we've got, um, right you know, actual developers who have the thing running. Um, it does seem like Q4, Q1 is right. a much better bet than some of our previous predictions. But there's a, there's a lot there's more a huge... evidence to back up the claim that we will begin staking very shortly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And there is a huge ETH2 will never ship crowd, mm -hmm. right? That says yep. basically um, the longer it delays, yeah, to this day, the longer it delays, the less likely it is to actually mm -hmm. happen. And I think they are in for quite a surprise right. when that day does come and when ETH2 does ship. That is the thing that I think will impact the Ether price. Not that there is actually going to be demand for Ether for staking, but just the the change in the narrative, right? Like the, the change in what in what is true. Like all of the ETH2 will never ship crew and you know that proof of work is here to stay crew like all the and and mainly the execution risk of ethereum 2.0 right because if we get to phase zero well then phase one and phase two aren't that far off right like phase two is super far off if we never got to phase zero but with phase zero behind us we can start having that compounding progress right and again like one of the reasons why ethereum quote unquote 2.0 has taken so long is we started building phase zero one and two in parallel with each other right and so with phase one here like it's not like okay now we can begin on phase one or when phase zero is here it's not like that's when we start work on phase one when phase zero is here we can start to implement phase one right and then once phase one is implemented we can implement phase two like a lot of this work has already happened and so the eth2 crew uh, the the anti-eth2 crew i think is in for a a big short squeeze if you will you know, because I'm like more confident that ETH2 is actually like coming, right? I'm 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 very confident that that it, that it's coming swell and sway. It's only a matter of time, probably probably months, um, maybe weeks. Uh, when we get Vitalik on the podcast next week, I think we can broaden the discussion because whenever you get Vitalik on a podcast, it's kind of like um, you, you want to ask the question of like, yeah, but so when is it coming? 
like <laughs> when ETH2, Vitalik, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, and this time I feel like in our podcast, we can go a bit deeper mm-hmm. on not like when ETH2, but mm-hmm. like why ETH2, right? Right. Because this has been a long vision coming. Mm-hmm. Like what are the, uh, the, the principles behind mm-hmm. the design of mm-hmm. ETH2 and what's important, right? Because so that'll be a, yeah, crypto is absolutely political. That's why, like, you know, Brian Armstrong, mm-hmm. you know, his piece, just like, you know, he was, and I get, I get the sentiment. He put a blog pe- post out that was like, mm-hmm. hey, um, you know, we're here for a, a different, like a business mission, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, open finance kind of mission. And we're not here to talk politics. But at the same time, right, I get it's not left versus right politics. Right. But um, crypto is absolutely political. Right. It is like absolutely an anti-authoritarian mm-hmm like movement. Yep. And that in itself is political. What if you get into mm-hmm. a government, um, a, a state that says like, hey, it's illegal to to own crypto, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then the act of owning crypto is is very political in those cases. So yes. I don't and think you can escape that. And also, therefore, some of the design decisions around ETH 2.0 become extremely relevant, especially totally. with a top-down decision where like crypto is illegal. Well, whether we are staking like 32 ETH or 3200 ETH is an important design uh, implementation that impacts how the network can function under an adversarial environment such as that. And so that's kind of why we're getting Vitalik on to go through some some of the decisions, which are therefore political decisions. I don't know if Vitalik would agree with that framing, but I think we'll ask him. Or whether we can stake it on like a, a consumer laptop with a cell phone connection, or mm-hmm. whether we have to stake it in a big data center. That's mm-hmm. certainly another political right. uh, consideration that feeds into the design. All right, David, uh, this has been State of the Nation, man, but we've got one more thing to talk about, and that's um, our new episode, our new sort of mini show mm-hmm. that we're coming out with on Friday, uh, the Rollups Roundout. So, so what is that? What's going to be the format for that? Yeah, so Rollups Round is going to be where we go through the news, go through the events, and kind of go through some of the things that Ryan and I have on our mind. So it's going to be a very well-packaged, very quick, um, you know, 30, 30 minutes, but with lots of topics, uh, roll-ups of all the things that are relevant. And so we have, you know, the price action market commentary kind of distilled what we just talked about, uh, as well as product releases from the DeFi world, you know, funding rounds, uh, you know, who's going to be hiring, any legal action that has been taken, milestones, who's hiring. And then we're going to go through a, a series of, you know, what's on the news, what's in your mind, what are you looking forward to, right? So, uh, we were we are always taking suggestions. This is kind of where the Bankless Nation can ping me and Ryan saying, "Hey, will you include this in the next rollups round?" That's what the rollups round is for. Uh, so this Thursday, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, the Q3 token report, which is coming out tomorrow on Bankless. We're also going to be talking about the Department of Justice 83-page crypto framework and what that means for you. Uh, oh my we're also God! Gonna... I hope Jake put together a tweet summary for that. Yeah, well, I'm saying he did actually. He did. Okay. Uh, Uh, We're also going to talk about the Blue Kirby exit, which I think is a fun little sitcom episode of Crypto and DeFi. Uh, And then we're also going to be talking about Tornado Cash because the Tornado Cash is picking up speed. All right. Awesome, man. That's going to be great. So what you need to do is hit subscribe to the YouTube channel to make sure you catch that. That'll be Friday mornings. We will also be pushing that out on the podcast. So if you're on the run and prefer the audio version of that, that will be there for you too. So this has been episode 18 of state of the nation. We're 18 years old now, David, we can vote. Um, (laughs) So thanks for joining us. Risks and disclaimers, of course, DeFi, ETH is risky. So is crypto. You could lose what you put in. 
EIP 1559 looks like it's coming. It may not come. Who knows? This is not financial advice, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.